please do turn in uh, Scripture to Luke chapter 10. Some of you have already opened up to Luke because you know that's where we're always going to (laughs) go. At least for the time being, up until uh, Easter, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, making our way through. We're at chapter 10, and uh, we're to a familiar story. You'll see it uh, in the Pew Bible. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, look at page 869. We're going to start in verse 25. We've been exploring, we've been studying and giving consideration, because Luke, uh, the historian, the physician, sets it up this way, that in his account... He's uh, having us peer into a bit more of what it means to be a disciple. Um, Not not just to to call ourselves a Christian, but to press in on the question of what is a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus? What does that include? What does that entail? What does it mean when we hear the words of Jesus and we look at the way of Jesus to really press in? What is a disciple? Uh, What does it mean for, for us to be faithful and true followers of Christ. Well, amongst other things, we've uh, discovered that it means that uh, we must uh, at times uh, be needy, confess that we're needy, to acknowledge that we're needy, to count the cost, uh, to even face at times opposition or persecution, that we must be a people as followers who deny ourselves and serve other people as if that was the high road, if that was the best way is to be a servant of others, to be ambassadors, to be witnesses for Jesus and of Jesus, to name his name, to prioritize Jesus, even above some of our wants, even above good things like family, that for the sake of the kingdom, we would prioritize uh, Jesus. And here he talks about Luke is directing us towards what Jesus would say about how followers ought to be a people of love. Love, of course, is an affection, and of course, it's also an action, and uh, both are in view here. And I want to, before we dig in on it, set some more context to remind us of what we just read last week uh, in the verses prior. When Jesus talks about, he, this is just going back, you've already got the text open, so we're going to look at verse 21. Because he prays this before the Lord. He says, in the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said in his prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Now, the Bible is pro-wisdom, okay? The Bible is very much pro-understanding. But what is he saying here? That he has, he has hidden those things. It's, it's the people he's referring to who are proud, who are intellectually proud of their wisdom and understanding. And that inhibits them. That, that causes them to, to be blind even to it at times. And he's commending to them uh, the simplicity of faith in children. Similar to when Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. Oh, I guess we don't have to be righteous and holy. Jesus was a friend of sinners. No, it's not saying that. It's saying Jesus didn't come for the people who were self-righteous. He came for the people who humbly acknowledged and knew that they were sinners in need of grace, if that makes sense. Hopefully it does. Well, let's stand up and let's read this familiar account. Beginning, look with me at verse 25. Hear this. This is the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he, then he set him on his own animal and, and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him to, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Would you join me in prayer? You may be seated. Father, please send Holy Spirit to open our minds and our our hearts and our ears and our eyes, maybe in a fresh way, because this is a familiar parable And if we really press in, we know that these words are challenging, but you intend them to be for us life and wisdom. Would you bring us, please, both conviction uh, and comfort? I pray that you'd give us love when we look at our neighbors and you would give us suspicion when we look at ourselves and you would give us courage when we look at Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. This past week, uh, a pastor friend of mine who wanted to see the South Shore uh, before he, he, he left, he was doing an interim work at uh, Christ the King in Cambridge. And uh, he came down and I decided to take him to lunch. And uh, we drove over to Situate and I wanted him to see the, you know, the water and the lighthouse. And we were going to have lunch together. And so we did. And when, as I was driving over the bridge on 3A, I was just astounded as I crossed over what normally looks like a river. The North River uh, actually looked like just part of the bay because it was so flooded. It was high tide. There was water everywhere. Obviously, the, the melting of all the snow and it was going on. And that, that time of day, it was just covered up. And, uh, and then as we left lunch, we had lunch down near the water, uh, we were driving back and you could see there's just turbulent water out on the, the ocean. And it wasn't until the next day, uh, this is earlier in the week, the next day, uh, my friend uh, reaches out to me again. Hey, did you realize what happened in Situate, you know, in, in the, uh, in the, off, off the coast in the water? At the same time we were having lunch, there was a, a, a water rescue. And he read about it in the, in, in the New York Times. Uh, evidently, there was a lady who was uh, working on a Zoom call. Her name's Pat Hart. She's on a she's in Marshfield, and she's looking into the Situate Harbor, into the or, uh, to the water outside of Situate. And she's on a Zoom call on the second floor of her house, and she sees these fishermen who are in a 55 foot boat. The, the meeting continues on, and then she looks up at uh, a different point and realizes. That boat's not there anymore. These were clam. Uh, these were fishermen who were who were dra- dragging for clams, and they must have caught the bottom. And this 55-foot uh, boat began to capsize and sank. And she didn't see it this time, so she immediately thought something was wrong. She told her boss, "Hold on." Called 911 and uh, started to inquire. And they sent rescue for these guys who had already been in the water for 45 minutes with no life vest on, and uh, they were about to die of hypothermia. Well, the situate uh, chief of, of, uh, of the fire department, Chief Murphy, says she must have looked up at the right time, he said. The stars were aligned for these gentlemen being alive today. 
We love these stories, right? This is what we call a modern-day Good Samaritan story, right? And, and, and we love these stories. I mean, for good reason, right? We, we love it when we see, of course, I wouldn't say the stars that aligned as if it were like a, you know, this is like an astrological, you know, lucky day for these guys. No, it was the mercy of God working through people made in God's image to do acts of kindness. It's a beautiful thing. And we love a good Samaritan story and we're familiar with it. And it even has that name, right? Because of this particular story in this parable for good reason. But. What if this is not primarily a parable about social concern or being kind to needy people or associating with those who are different? I'm not saying it's it's less than that, but what if it's more than that? What if there is something of life and of love that is deeper and bigger that we should see? I I just put together here uh, three headings. They're listed there in the order of service to make our way through and to uh, kind of break this all down. The first thing is that we see is the curiosity of the lawyer. The second thing we see is the concern of the Lord. And the last thing we see is the compassion of the Samaritan here in this account. The curiosity of the lawyer. The lawyer, by the way, another way of identifying them would be a scribe. These would have been uh, you know, part of akin to the Pharisees that were experts in the law. They were religious scholars. They know God's law. Unfortunately, they've also added to God's law and layered on things on top of its traditions. They can tend to be very strict and legalistic. Uh, the lawyer is inquiring as uh, and he's somewhat respectful, by the way, because in verse 25, he does say, you know, rabbi, which is a teacher, a respectable uh, term of honor to him. I'm just con- you know, I'm curious about this eternal life thing. How do I how am I, in essence, part of the resurrection and peace with God and inherit that eternal life. Jesus, as he so masterfully does always, answers this question, an important question, with a a question. Thank you. Yes, you're awake. Good. Uh, He answers with a question. What does the man reply with? He says, well, what's what's your take on the law? And the, the man replies with the Shema. In, in, in Hebrew, the, the people of God would have known, and he takes and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 when he says, what? Love the Lord your God with your whole self. Love your neighbor as yourself. The summation of the law and the Shema are these two things. And Jesus commends him. He says, yes, okay. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. By the way, Jesus isn't commenting on whether or not this is even possible, (laughs) but that it's necessary if you're going to walk in the ways of God. Because that guy, that part of him should have said, okay, but I can't do this. Does that make sense? Like he doesn't even trip up. He just says, okay, well, good, cool. All right. Well, let me just ask you a little nuance about the neighbors and stuff like that. No. The law standard should have given him some pause and humility. It's just not possible. I've already failed the law. I've not not loved God with my whole self. But at two points here, I think Luke gives us a glimpse into this man's heart. It's almost as if Luke wants us, as we hear Jesus interacting with him, he wants us to see this man, this scribe, this lawyer, as Jesus sees him. And there's two places that it it pops out. The first is, it was recorded in verse 25. It says he wanted to put Jesus to the test. 
He, he, wants to, he wants to trip him up or reveal him in some way, stump him. Regardless of whether that's entirely the case, we don't exactly know. The second indicator that Luke gives us is verse 29 when it says, Desiring himself, look again at the text, Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? We know what it's like to justify ourselves. But, oh, I'm so sorry. You just don't understand. You know, I meant to. Uh, it's not like what it looks like. It's not that bad. Have you ever done any blame shifting? This week? Okay. <laughs> you, you know what this sounds like? We want to justify ourselves either to look good or to, to minimize what, you know, what, what you know, to compare or to, to shift blame, as I mentioned. He wants to justify himself. So he's. He's kind of sorting this out. There's a little bit of, you know, conscience maybe stirring here. He's curious, but he's not humble. He's not desperate. He's still self. He's still self. Self-referenced. New Testament scholar Howard Marshall puts it well when he says, "He, this man, the, the scribe, seemed more concerned with critiquing Jesus than having eternal life. Eternal life is not a passion of his soul, but a topic for debate." He's not wanting to satisfy a, a crying need, but to engage in a battle of wits. The law expert had the right question with the wrong motive. The law expert had the right question with the wrong motive. By the way, that wasn't Howard Marshall. That was Dale Ralph Davis, uh, another commentator and scholar. So what's Jesus concerned about? Right. We know what the curiosity is. We see that it's not an entirely wrong question. That the, the law expert described once. But what is my next heading? What is Jesus concerned with? What is the Lord concerned? Well, Jesus is always concerned with the law. The law of God is not arbitrary, right? We, we, we read that earlier. It, it's intended for us. It gives life. It reveals the character of God. It's not random. It's not silly. It's not shallow. It involves, it, it, if you've ever broken it down, you, you know that part of it's vertical and part of it is love your neighbor in a way that you don't covet there or steal from them or deceive them. So we know that the law of God is a good thing and Jesus wants us to give attention to it, but he does not want to detach it and never does detach it from the lawgiver, the heavenly father. Can that be, can that be done? Does that happen? Well, yes, it does. There are people that give a great deal of attention to rules and to laws and to, and, to, and to performing their duty, but not to the heart of this, which is a relationship with the law giver. Nor does he detach it. Jesus never detaches the law of God from the, the person of the Heavenly Father or people made in the image of God. The implications, the, the outworkings of such obedience and love. But to obey to the letter of law, which no one can do perfectly or consistently... But even to attempt to do that, to be religious and moral and, and uh, obey the law without a view towards a love relationship with God is mistaken. It's, it's an error. It's flawed. I can imagine the lawyer, you know, to himself say, well, you know, love God, be devoted. I mean, I've got that down. He's got lots of you know, knowledge. He has given great attention to the, the carefulness by which he's been living and swimming with a group of people that are in that, that same uh, route. But it doesn't say that you should know the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. No, it doesn't say that you should serve God or obey God. It says that you should love God. The law says love. 
That, that involves head, heart, and hand. It involves our, our, our mind, our, our will, and yes, even our affections. Do you love God? I mean, do, do, you, do, do, do you have affection for the Heavenly Father? But the lawyer wants to focus on the first part. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God. After all, that's the most important thing, right? Let's let's get that done. And then that neighbor thing, that love your neighbor yourself, that is the second great commandment. And it's a distant second, right? I mean, it's like we, we, we can, the most important thing, let's focus on the most important thing. Number one, let's love God. I, I think I can do that. Who won the Super Bowl last year? Oh, we all know what that answer is. Because it was Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. I almost said the Patriots. (laughs) Those used to go together. Uh, Anyway, um, you know, we we know who won, right? Last year, it was, was, who got second? (laughs) We all forgot. (laughs) It was the Chiefs, and it wasn't even a close second. It was a blowout, right? It was, a, it was a distant second. Nobody wants that place. That's not what's going on here. It's not second place, meaning it's a, a distant second or less important or can be set aside. No, that's not what second means at all. It's more like the Boston Marathon. Okay? One of my Old Testament professors, when he was was teaching on the law and the summation of the law and these two commandments, he used this analogy. Now, we all know that there are people that compete in the Boston Marathon in wheelchairs, and they are incredible athletes. But to to run in the Boston Marathon, you have to be able to walk. This is going to sound very obvious, but just track with me for a moment, right? You 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 can run the Boston Marathon, but you've got to be able to walk to run the Boston Marathon. But you cannot win the Boston Marathon without running. Running, to follow along with my analogy here, is loving God. But you cannot do that without walking, which is loving your neighbor. So you, you, you cannot love your, if you cannot love your neighbor, then you're not running, you're not even walking. Does that make sense now? They're conjoined. It's, it's both of these things. It's not second place in the sense of runner-up, less important, easily overlooked, often forgotten, distant. They're conjoined together. Does Scripture support this elsewhere? Well, it sure does. Because in 1 John chapter 4, it says, If anyone, verse 20, if anyone says, quote, I love God, but hates his brother, is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has not seen. For he who does not love his brother whom he can't see cannot love God whom he has not seen. Did you catch that? He cannot love God. Those two things can't be together. Of course, then it says, not only it takes it to a whole new level, he says, but not only to love your neighbor, but to love your neighbor as yourself, which is something that we do very well. It comes very natural. We love ourselves. It's remarkable. The extent that we will go to, to serve ourselves, to protect ourselves, to, uh, to benefit ourselves, to make ourselves happy, to uh, you know, make ourselves look good, to make ourselves, you, you fill in the blank, even when we hate ourselves, 
We love ourselves. I know. I stand in front of the mirror. I hate it that I'm bald, and I hate it that I have werewolf ears. I'm loving myself even as I hate myself. And some of you go to the gym, and you go, you look in the mirror, and you go, I've been working out for two months. Crying out loud, why am I, I'm so scrawny. I want to have some guns like that guy over there. You're still loving yourself as you hate yourself? The law doesn't say, oh, by the way, it says, love your neighbor. Then doesn't say, love people that you've gathered very close to you, who like you, who appreciate you, who think like you, who vote like you, who walk like you, who have the same interests as you do, who benefit you. It says, love the people who serve your interests. No, it doesn't. It says, love your neighbor. And the lawyer here, he goes back, of course, to trying to justify himself. And so he says, okay, can we just make this, could we make this definition of neighbor a little more manageable, right? Could, could, we, could we just kind of restrict the scope of what we're talking about when we say neighbor? What do you mean by, what do you mean by neighbor? What is he doing? He's trying to reduce the law of God. Not a good idea. This is where Howard Marshall puts it best. He says, Jesus does not supply information as to whom one should help. Failure to keep the commandments springs not from a lack of information, but from a lack of love. It was not fresh knowledge that the lawyer needed, but a new heart. In plain English, he needed conversion. He needed to be converted to the love and truth of God. Well, let's look at this last thing here, the compassion that we see of the Samaritan. Because this is where Jesus is going to use a parable I know it's familiar probably to you. By the way, he didn't have to, if you, if you thought about this, he did not need to use a parable. I mean, we, we can guess Jesus' answer to this question, who is my neighbor, by just looking at Jesus' life. Who does he associate with? The prostitute. He, he, he's with the tax collector. He, he's with the Samaritan woman. We're, we're, not, we're not clueless on what Jesus would have said in his answer, but he chooses to use a parable. And when he does that, he also chooses carefully who the, the, the parties and players are in that parable. If you notice, he, he chose, as his example of those who walked on the other side of the street, a Levite and a priest, both a part of the, you know, the religious class, the, the, you know, the scholars of the day, people that he would have held in high regard. They, they were his type. And then he chose, as, as the one uh, who, who comes and ministers, a Samaritan. Who's a, what is a Samaritan? What does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means it's someone from the region of northern Israel, which is Samaria. But those people were despised by the Jews. They were viewed as people who had intermingled with the Gentiles. They were considered, to put it in their language, half-breeds. They had their own place of worship, their own ways. They were dirty people. There was animosity that ran both ways between the Samaritans and the Jews. So you think about that, right? The fact that he chose that as the one who is a stepping forth in a, in a particular loving way for his neighbor. It's meant, to, it's meant to grab this man and to highlight his problems. The road that he's referring to here between Jerusalem and Jericho was well known to be, uh, you know, it's a 15-mile stretch or, or so, and it's known to be a place where there's, you know, there's caves and 
you know, there's there's places where people can easily be, you know, attacked by a band of robbers. And that's what he has. He's beat. He's beaten up. The guys left. What the, the text says here, half dead. I don't. What is what is what is what's the other guys? What are the other guys thinking? I I'd love to help, but I just don't have time. Um, you know, he had it coming to him. You know, I know, uh, you know, these choices. This is presumably a Jew. This is, these are, these are, it doesn't matter, but all the more. I mean, this is not, it didn't say that the victim was the Samaritan. It says the man is trying to help him as a Samaritan. He's trying to help someone that would have been perceived as an enemy. What does he do? Well, he loved this man. He loved this man with his money. He loved this man, and maybe this is even more important. And that two denarii is not it's not a small amount of money. This is like he's putting this man up for like a month. I mean, it's a lot or more. But hear this. You know, think think about this. His time. He set aside time. He delayed. He delayed his what he had, his schedule is on hold. And this is indeed. Uh, a beautiful thing. He's willing to, to go even above and beyond. Tell me what I owe when I come back, what, what he needed when I come back, and we'll take care of these things. This is loving his neighbor. It is beautiful. It is compelling. It should press us. But like I said at the beginning, what if this is not primarily uh, a tale of philanthropy or social action and associating with People who are needy. Most people think that. And you know why they think that? Because they begin reading this text at verse 29. Who is my neighbor? But that's not how the text works. Luke didn't write it that way. We have to go to the context, which is verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you understand? The issue here is not the identity of of the neighbor, but the matter of eternal life. It's, it, the point is not be like the good Samaritan. The driving point is not be like Jesus. The law of God, the summation of the law in love, gives us life that we can walk in. But the road of salvation and to in, 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 in inherit eternal life it's, it's a deeper matter of the heart. It's only to the extent that we realize that we do not fulfill God's law of love vertically or horizontally, nor can we, that we come to the place where we realize that any prospect of our ability to love has got to come from God. And I am needy to this end. I am not able. I have, I have reached the end of myself I, it's not. It's one thing to love people who are lovely, who benefit us, but again, that is self-love. To love this way, to love sacrificially, to love to this extent with our whole self, and as we love ourselves, is coming in contact with the love and the forgiveness and the compassion of Jesus. You see, the passage that I read, remember, you can't say you love God and hate your, your brother, is 1 John 
4.20. But just before that, it says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And, and how does Jesus love? Well, like this man, with compassion, without prejudice, which is lurking in all of us, not not. Not begrudgingly, but generously, with compassion, he loves. Jesus lays down his time. Jesus lays down the praises of heaven. Jesus leaves the comforts of heaven and enters our world in the name of love to even lay down his life for people who are not lovely. That is us. My friend who I had lunch with this week, Clyde, Pastor, he has this turn of phrase that he reminds people of all the time, and I think it's important. It's not what you have done. It's not what's been done to you. It's what he has done, what he has done, and what he's done for you in Christ. It's very easy to get tripped up, and whether it's the traumatic realities of what has been done to you, or people who have grieved or sinned against you, That's not the focus. The focus is not on what we've done to perform or to to require or to to gain God's acceptance. It's what he has done for us. And then we flow from there into our response of love for God and neighbor. Well, I think we need some help. So um, why don't we pray? I'll give you a few moments. You take a few and, and pray, and I'll lead us close. Father, we...